Okay, I think it's happening. My man. Yes. Okay. Welcome to What Else? Um, my guest on this episode is Mr. Anthony J.W. Benson. Thanks for doing this. Oh, man, you kidding? My pleasure. It's Nothing uh, I'd rather be doing right now than doing this with you. It's, uh, what else? That's great. Yes, indeed. Um, remind me what the JW stands Just for. Wonderful. Say that again? Just wonderful. <laughs> Is that the first time you've used that bit? It's not, actually. Okay. I get asked that all the time. I'm an English dude, so I was born in London. And there's some lineage and all that, I think, to uh, Wallace. You know, uh, I don't know if it's Wallace the Bruce or Bruce. Yeah, yeah. John Wallace is the middle name. Okay. So very English, kind of like named after my godfather, then named after some probably you know, religious thing, and then the family name, and then the surname. Right. So when did you, you lived in London for how long after you were born? Not, not long at all. I uh, was in um, I was in a really bad car accident when I was like really young, huh. and in addition to that, I was uh, deaf for four years from ages two to six. So when I came over to the states, to answer your question was around three. So I was deaf when I came to the states, and then got my hearing back miraculously around age six. So uh, that's one of the reasons I don't have a British accent. Can you talk about that for a minute? Like, what yeah. what changed? What happened? Do you know? Uh, I, I do remember this. It's kind of you know, it's kind of like a vision out of Outer Limits or Twilight Zone. I remember laying on a metal table, almost like what you see at a vet's office, you know, and this metal table laying on my side, and I could see down the hallway, and down the hallway were these plastic, these great modern, you know, 60s chairs that my mom was sitting in. And I remember there was this long metal probe with a little, I don't know, a little curl on the end of it digging into my ear. And I just know that there was some surgery done. I know that each of my, you know, I have very scarred uh, eardrums, so um, both of them have been broken multiple times. Um, they don't know why. I used to think, you know, long before I got clarity on it, that the accident that I had, which split my skull, um, around 18 months, I think that was, uh, was the cause of my deafness, but they were unrelated, I believe. Um, it's hard to substantiate that, but that's, that's really, I just remember that moment of being freaked out, feeling like, you know, when I think about it now, it's like I was pulled up to the mothership and being probed, except it was in my ears, and I remember screaming. You know, really, because it didn't feel good. Yeah. Crazy. And then, like, just like that, you were, your hearing was Yeah, bad? and my hearing came back, and I never learned a sign. I uh, was a lip reader. Okay. And I am to this day, bizarrely. Um, I, you know, when I pay attention, I notice that I'm actually, when I'm speaking to people directly, I'm actually looking at their mouth more than their eyes. Wow. And that's just out of, you know, that's what I had to do for so long because I was deaf. You know, you needed to kind of figure out what people are saying. That's wild. Yeah. And wh where did you live as a kid when you moved to? I lived all over. Uh, so born in London. Yeah. And then moved over. To my mom, uh, sadly, I didn't know my father. 
um, because they divorced when I was three and my mom had met somebody new, another Navy man, we moved around. So I think we landed, um, I'm not sure where we landed because it's a blur because uh, all the way up to second grade, probably I lived in six different places, the Washington DC, a couple of places in New Jersey, Long Beach, and then Kansas City is where I landed for a while for the Wonder Bread years. And was there, you know, from a kid all the way up to say, you know, sixth, seventh grade. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Do you have like memories of each of those places, or do you I do. Just kind I of? Re- yeah. I remember Disneyland. You know, when I was a kid living out in Long Beach, I remember wearing a cowboy outfit and having the cap guns running around. When I was a little kid, I remember taking, you know, and when in New Jersey, I remember my folks getting a new refrigerator and we took the box because we had a big hill on, on the front yard and we'd use that as a sled to go down the grass. I remember, um, you know, trying to fry an egg on the hot, uh, you know, hot, uh, you know, road and all that on the, on, you know, on the black, uh, black top. And I remember um, being a kid. And then when I got to Kansas, I was excelling in school and in sports. I was a bit of a jock, and I was also um, doing really well in school. And prior to um, moving away from there, the marriage and the family system was beginning to unravel. There were things that weren't too cool going on. And I, at that point, was keeping busy with playing in the neighborhood. And that I remember a lot. We lived across from the Indian missions in Shawnee Mission, Kansas, and I used to go and play in the, in the properties there and go turn over rocks and, you know, look for crawdaddies and all that kind of stuff and look at bats at night and try to catch fireflies and play hide-and-seek in the whole neighborhood because every family other than ours had six-plus kids. Whoa. Um, yeah, it was crazy. So I enjoyed that until the wheels kind of came off the marriage, and then also I was put into college courses um, as a kid. So I was like really excelling academically. And then we moved up to Minnesota and then that's really quickly where things fell apart. And, you know, my life changed dramatically at that point. Now, um, tell me a little, I want to talk about that in a second about, about Minnesota. Um, but, uh, tell me a little about, uh, playing sports as a kid. What did you play and at like what ages? I was big into football. I was big into tennis. My mom, uh, when she was young, played Wimbledon as, a, as an amateur and also was a tennis teacher. And I just loved tennis. I mean, even as a kid, you know, we do breakfast in Wimbledon and do strawberries and cream and all that. It's kind of a big thing watching it on the big tube, you know, television set. Um, but I did, I did track. Uh, I wasn't fast. I was quick, you know, it was that kind of thing. So, and I played soccer. That was kind of my main thing okay. and uh, loved soccer. What age uh, did you play, start playing soccer? I guess it would be, you know, middle school, you know, cause I left Kansas city right around seventh grade, just the beginning. I forget where that, yeah, yeah. I think it was around seventh grade. So um, I also, that's when I broke my ribs. Um, yeah. I was playing uh, goalie, which I never did. I was kind of a forward, kind of a score guy. And then I was in practice playing goalie and 
the other team got beyond my two defensemen and ball was a little far ahead of him and he was running toward me and I had two choices to stand my ground and try to block the shot or go get the ball. I went and got the ball and literally at the same time as I'm hitting the deck, grabbing the ball, he's kicking full speed. And uh, next thing I know, I've got the whole team and all the coaches around me in a circle as I'm going, "Ah!" and my lungs are being crushed by my, by my ribs, and I was put in the car for the next two hours during practice. Found out I broke three or four ribs. Most of my of my friends who played like sports in high school and stuff, all the more severe injuries were from soccer rather than football. Yeah, it's just the worst I ever got with football was a bump on the chin because someone's yeah. helmet, you know, slammed in because my uh, chin yeah. strap fell off. Um, so what? What yearish was that? Because I feel like that's kind of an unusual for younger people. Soccer is like the thing, right? But back yeah. in the day, there wasn't that much organized soccer, at least in you know, for me in the Chicago area and stuff. So, yeah. did but you this were like in a were you like in a league? Yeah, yeah, I was in a league. Yeah, I mean everything was pretty organized where I lived. I mean, the yeah. football team had jerseys and we had coaches and. Um, and same with soccer, same with baseball. I mean, I played a lot of baseball as a, as a younger kid. Yeah. Um, even got a little trophy for it. But, I, you know, there, it's just those days, you know, it's kind of like all the movies you might watch, you know, whether it's Bad News Bears or Sandlot and tons of other movies. There's something very romantic about, you know, in terms of my memory. Sure. Remembering those days of hanging out with fellow kids on the bus and going up to, you know, the concession stand and you would order a suicide. You know, suicide was you'd mix like yeah. everything together, you know. Right. All the drink, all the soda. All of them. Yeah, suicide, you know. And, you know, and then you'd go play ball and, and it was a gas, you know. So it's funny, you know, I didn't continue as, a, as, a, as I got older as an adult, uh, as an adult in sports. But my memories in my youth was some of my best memories. Yeah, that's great. Do you, because you mentioned doing that, but you also mentioned some interesting things about like going around and looking under rocks and looking at the sky yeah. at night and stuff like that. Um, when you think about yourself as a, as a kid, do you think like, oh, I was kind of a loner? Or do you think like, oh, I was kind of a kid that loved being with other kids? Or is it a mix? Yeah, it was mixed because... In those days, we had so many kids around us, literally 10 kids at one house, six at the other, eight at the other. I mean, it was just crazy. So there's always somebody to play with. But I also um, would go for long bike rides by myself, which I, you know, I was just talking about this the other day. And it's ridiculous to think about what I did as a kid, which I wouldn't allow my children to do nowadays, right? I mean, it's just sure. insane, some of the things I did at a really young age. So... Um, I would explore. I mean, I always had these notions that I wanted to be an archaeologist, anthropologist, zoologist, because I, I had such a passion for all those things, even at that very young age. So walking down a creek, you know, just for miles, you know, just traveling the creek, looking at things, building little forts and bushes along the banks of it to, you know, like I said, catching fireflies or looking for animals. That was stuff I did predominantly on my own. Yeah. Um, the organized stuff was one thing and also the quote organized neighborhood stuff was another, but, um, I did the same thing. I was fortunate, you know, we had a pool when I lived in Kansas. So I spent a lot of time in the pool by myself. Yeah. 
even when it was raining, I'd, I'd get a snorkel and sit underneath the water and just watch the raindrops hit the water above my head. Awesome. Yeah. I love that. I love that. Um, when you think, like when you think about those good times as a kid, like what are some of the, what are some of the things now that evoke, or if there is anything that evokes those feelings for you? Is there something that transports you back to that? Yeah, I think creativity, because that's what I do, you know, professionally and also personally. It's, it's really my love, my, you know, it's my passion. So the ability to uh, be creative is number one, music. Mm-hmm. You know, that's yeah. how you, I initially connected. Right. Um, art, expression, photography, words, images. Yeah. But also just being out in nature allows that sensory kind of component come back into play for me you know just yeah. walking around the lake or you know watching you know just the other night i just actually funny i just posted it yesterday out for an evening walk and this beautiful buck came up uh came up and just ran across the path and i was able to get a video of it it was kind of bounding bounding away those kind of things that you can't you never expect but you know, it's, I always say it's important to keep your eyes and heart open because beauty is everywhere. Yeah. And it's kind of finding the joy in any given moment. So for me, it's finding the joy in given moments, whatever that may be. Yeah. When did you, you mentioned, we'll talk about music a bunch. When did you start to get interested in, in music? I was very fortunate that um, my mom was big into the arts. Uh, when we lived in Kansas City, she was both, and this ties into my interest in animals and all the other stuff I mentioned, she was the publicity director for the Kansas City Zoo. Okay. She was also the publicity director for the Kansas City Ballet. So at a young age, I was exposed to the arts, not only through ballet, but there's a very famous theater there called the Starlight Theater in Kansas City, which is an open-air theater. Okay. And I would go see plays, you know, like Annie Gat, Gun. Um, Man of La Mancha, mm-hmm. things that really became kind of important to me was, you know, plays and music and all the music of these, you know, famous plays. Um, and at a very young age, sitting in the basement of um, the house in Kansas, I had this little 45 player, you know, the kind you open up and the whole thing. But I would put LPs on it. My very first album was Pink Floyd's very first album. I presented the Gone. Yeah. And so I'm sitting there in my little Nehru jacket and burning incense. And I'm, you know, I'm like 10 <laughs> playing Pink Floyd and I'm, and, and totally, totally into it. Um, so my love and appreciation as a listener. Yeah. Grew, and I was fortunate to go see things like I saw, you know, Ben Verena's Judas and saw Jesus Christ Superstar, one of my favorite plays of all time musicals. I saw that live and I saw other shows live. And so, you know, the combination of seeing live music, listening to music at a young age and gaining appreciation led to an eventual situation where I had injured myself um, at the restaurant I was working at. I was like 17 years old, ripped at the shreds and ended up in the hospital for a month in traction. Holy cow. And that was its own scene. And there's great stories just to that itself but in getting out i was in a back brace and couldn't really do much and so a friend of mine whom i knew from school um 
this is in Minnesota now. Yeah. Um, he invited me down to his home in Mason City, Iowa. So we went down. I went down there. I was just hanging out because I couldn't do much more. And he took me to see this band. And this band uh, was a three-piece power trio, kind of like Triumph, um, same era. And they kicked ass. They were just amazing. Guitar players, great. They sound great. They had this huge sound system. And I was like, whoa. So when I came back to the Twin Cities where I was living, um, I knew this guy who was in a famous band at the time there had started a music agency. And... Um, I ended up pitching the band, unbeknownst to the band, I was pitching them to the agency. The agency was so impressed with what I was doing, they hired me as a booking agent, and the band became so impressed with how I was handling getting them, even though they didn't know about it until I got them some bookings, is I became their manager. Wow. And this so was at age 17? 17. Yeah, 17. So at 17, I'm on the road doing the whole Midwest thing from Iowa going to gigs, all the ballrooms and, you know, you know, bars and places that bands back then played, uh, schlepping gear and 18 foot, you know, rider truck and traveling all over in this band, you know, hot jam was the name and they got real close to getting a record deal. Um, but there was recordings, live gigs, opening acts, all that kind of thing. And also I was a booking agent for some of the top bands in the Midwest. And I ended up moving, to another top agency and doing more work. And I eventually managed another band. And in that process, I became familiar with what was needed to, because there wasn't the internet, there wasn't sure. all the tools that are available now for doing, you know, promotion and marketing. And so there was no social media. So I, I learned how to do promotion and marketing in that era to help get people showing up to gigs. And that was its trip. It was a trip unto itself, just from a learning standpoint of getting into the real inner workings of what it's like to work with rock bands and music and musicians. What what year ish was this when you really kind of kicked into that? It's been late seventies. Um, okay. Yeah, it would have been late seventies, and at the same time, I ended up um, having the opportunity to produce an album. I was eighteen when I produced my first album up in a small little eight-track studio in Duluth, Minnesota for a gentleman by the name of Rio Pardo, who had kind of like a Billy Eckstein voice and played trumpet and had kind of like a Sammy Davis Jr. vibe all mixed mm -hmm. in one. And he'd get these Berkeley cats coming out to the lodge in Wisconsin, Telemark Lodge, that he was kind of the house band for. And uh, ended up taking him to the studio and working with these Berkeley guys and cutting an album. So that kind of got my my appetite wet for that kind of work as well. And I didn't know what I was doing, of course, at that age. Um, right. But I learned about the process of working with people and my love for music. And these were all kind of like standards, you know, rainy night in Georgia and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, but eventually that allowed me to be ready years later when I had a bigger opportunity when I worked in LA to produce another album. Yeah. So how did that progress? How did you get from Minnesota to, to being in LA working on music stuff? And I was working um, not only in music business in Minnesota, but I was around and knew a lot of top comedians in Minnesota. And I ended up working with many of them. Um, and I eventually had an opportunity, um, you know, and I'm giving you the truncated version here, yeah. uh, but the, 
I was working, it was friends with and working with Louis Anderson, who's a well-known comedian. And he was going out to LA to further his career and took me with him. So that's what got my butt to LA. And this is uh, 1985. Okay. And 84, 85. And deep into the entertainment business. I mean, my first night in Los Angeles was at Mary Pickford's house, uh, coming up to this amazing, famous mansion, and then, you know, talking over an hors d'oeuvre spread with Ken Norton, the boxer, and Linda Blair from The Exorcist. Yeah. I mean, that's my first night. Yeah. And, you know, it only kind of built from there. So I was around the comedy store for years, almost every night. And yeah. what were you doing? Like, were you managing comedians or something or booking? People? I ended up working with some comedians, doing some writing, um, did work. I did, you know, did some promotion, marketing. I did stuff with Louis. Our, our paths diverged, but I started working with a lot of other people. Yeah. At the same time, I ended up, uh, you know, also kind of sticking my toe back in the music business, um, got in a relationship with a woman who was a talented artist and was pushing her career. So there was a lot of nights at Madame Wong's and Club Blondre, you know, with the music thing. And then there was nights at the comedy store and at the improv. Um, at the same time, I started doing work with nonprofits and, you know, doing events and things of that nature where, you know, pulling, you know, factions of both of those into it made a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, and I did about five years in, in Los Angeles, but I eventually got to a place where, you know, I told myself I don't want to wake up here any longer. Yeah. And I moved back to Minnesota. What was it that you didn't like about it? It's, um, it's an industry town. And yeah. so everybody is yearning and jockeying and wanting and dreaming. And, and that's all good. But it's kind of like the feeling of, you know, at a bridal store on a sale where everybody's rushing forward trying to make something happen and nobody is really who they really are because yeah. they all want to be something other than a waiter or doing phone sales or, or whatever. Yeah. And in addition to that, it was so crowded. I mean, this is, you know, many years ago now. Um, I didn't like the traffic. I didn't like the feeling that everybody was on. It was just, it, it, it just wore on me. And I also didn't see myself trying to, you know, did I really want to push into the music business? Did I want to get in the movie business? Did I want to go through that? And for me, it wasn't, it wasn't the right call. Yeah. Um, when you think about those years, I'm sure you have a lot of interesting adventures, right? Yeah. I'm like in, the middle late eighties in Los Angeles and those businesses. Yeah. What do you think you learn about um, people and just dealing with people? Because that sounds like fundamentally that was the kind of work you were doing. Well, it's a mishmash. So a few things were happening. So um, what I thought I went out there for is not what I really ended up out there for. Okay. What I thought was going to be, and even though it was on all appearances, and even as I talk about it now, it's like, oh, yeah. And so, you know, I'm deep in the music and entertainment comedy world for five years. And I was. Um, but 
I was also, because I had dealt with, you know, five years earlier dealing with my addiction and dealing with my alcohol and drug abuse, which also, you know, which almost brought me to my death, I was in recovery. So when I got to LA, I was five years sober. One of the mm-hmm. first things I did was um, a, a, a friend and a, and a comedian took me to my meeting that was in the belly room of the comedy gal, excuse me, comedy store on Sunset Strip, which was just bizarre. Um, again, because I was, you know, a little bit of me was the kid off the turnip truck showing up in this world, and all of a sudden I'm in the midst of it. So what I learned is that I needed to do a lot of soul searching and and, and health and wellness growth for me. Mm-hmm. So as much as I was deep in the entertainment world, I was also deep in recovery, deep in therapy, deep in, you know, maturing as a, as a, as a human, deepening my recovery and my health and wellness in that regard. Mm-hmm. And so that gave me greater clarity to your question about people. What I saw was a lot of people in pain, a lot of comics, you know, under laughter are people that are pretty messed up and a lot of pain. They deal with it in different ways. I saw lots of drug abuse. I saw lots of anger. Um, I saw a lot of um, abhorrent sometimes behavior. I saw a lot of disappointing, sad behavior, Mm -hmm. uh, scary behavior. And what I learned was everybody, you know, is kind of fighting their own battle, um, struggling in their own way, regardless of appearances, regardless of what they do. And I'm talking about, I befriended and knew some extremely well-known famous people. And I can say that 99% of those people in those days were not healthy people. Mm-hmm. Very uh, much dealing with a lot of pain um, and issues. And in that case, you know, to my reference, unresolved issues. Mm-hmm. And so, and when you're dealing with fame and money, and that's what I was kind of around a lot, though I didn't have it, um, there was a thing, and that's kind of what helped me kind of ascertain what I needed to do for myself. You know, am I, am I trying to grab the brass ring or am I trying to build happiness in a different way? Mm-hmm. And for me, it was about do, doing it in a different way. So what I learned um, is that people, at least in that environment, were really struggling, really fighting, and it was an uphill battle. It was kind of like, you know, trying to clean, climb a slippery muddy hill in the middle of a thunder rainstorm and it's often you don't get to the top and even if you do it doesn't ensure anything of happiness or contentment or wisdom it just means you made money or you got a tv show or you got a hit album or whatever so i was searching for something more um i was searching for something a little deeper for me personally and that was part of what you know drew me away initially from from Los Angeles. Yeah, it's really interesting when you when you think about um, that era, and you're dealing with all these different people, and some of them are very successful, and probably you also saw a bunch of people who weren't. Right. Stuff. Did you see? Um, did you see a commonality or some kind of ingredient? um for success or was it just kind of some people succeed and some don't and it's not really ascribable to any well there's a couple answers to that because you've seen this in the music business and you've been around some of this too is that there are extremely successful people that are not there by virtue of their talent right 
And they're extremely talented people that do not find quote success. Right. And so there's a, there's, it seems like an injustice, right? I mean, I met extraordinarily talented people who never got a break or never got the TV show, never got the band, never got the album, never, whatever, fell in the blank. And then I would meet some people that were on hit TV shows and I would scratch my head and go, how did, uh-huh. how did this happen? Um, so th- there's no accounting for that really. But on some people that I got to know on a more personal level, I would say, and I, you know, I, I ascribe to this belief now, regardless of profession, but it certainly fits in the entertainment music world as well, is that if you come from a place of integrity, if you work from a place of professionalism, and you do your best, the chances of the success are incrementally increased, and the odds are going to be more in your favor. It doesn't mean you'll be rewarded in the way that you feel um, connects to what you do as a human being in a positive way. But at least you can live with yourself. And at least you'll know you've done the best you can. Um, there were people that I could say really worked hard. And I think you know, working hard has a lot to do with it. If you really commit to the process, whatever that is, you yeah. put in the hours, the time of the day, the sweat, the tears, and addition if you're a good person and are filled with integrity and professional, et cetera, it only helps you. But conversely, there was many people who work hard that, you know, some were real assholes and they still had the hit TV show. Um, you know, but those things are sometimes driven by money and circumstance beyond the individual. Sure. You know, some of those people are pawns in a bigger play. Um, and sometimes they know it, sometimes they don't. Um, that's very interesting and insightful. I want to ask about, um, you talked about getting involved in, in sort of producing records, right? Making records. Um, can you talk a little about how you got into that and like what your initially kind of what your function was? Cause I feel like for some people, the, the idea, what maybe for a lot of people, the, idea of like producing a record is sort of a mysterious term and it's not really clear what that is. So I'm interested like in your actual experience of, of getting into that, what it was. Well, like I mentioned, the first album was really young, but that was kind of a different experience uh, mm-hmm. compared to what the next experience of doing music was, which was 1987. I'd met this uh, person who had some money and wanted to do at the time, which kind of popular thing, new age album. And we we're going to do something, um, around what was thought then 1987, the harmonic convergence. Oh, sure. And so we had, we had a budget. I um, mean, we had money. I don't know if we had a budget. I think that would be overselling. <laughs> the guy had a bunch of money. So I did no budget for this, for this particular project. Right. But I was asked to produce this project, and I found myself, you know, finding a um, studio, and it ended up, uh, we went into Cherokee Studios, the famed Cherokee Studios. And I, you know, I'm going to answer your question, but as a quick aside, I found myself in the studio flipping out because my favorite artist, one of them, is David Bowie. And one of my favorite David Bowie albums is Station Station. And where was Station Station tracked? Cherokee Studios. No kidding. And there I am with the famous Rob brothers who ran and owned that place. And this is where, you know, Rod Stewart, Howard Stewart. I mean, the list goes on. Even the office manager was the ex-wife of Dr. John. So it was like this, it's like, 
man, I'm in, I'm in my 20s. I'm sitting behind this beautiful Neve board. We're bringing in musicians and top cats. We've got Todd, uh, Todd who is with uh, Peter Gabriel on keys. and I mean, just all these things. And I'm sitting behind the board orchestrating all this. I've never done this before in my life. And I'm, I've got my fingers on sliding faders. And, you know, so I, I've always, because I le- I, I'm a high school dropout. I mean, I haven't been in school since ninth grade. And every circumstance that I've put myself in, it's, it's a forced learning as I learn by doing. And I have a quick, I have a facility to learn very quickly and to adapt and to grow within that situation to achieve whatever it is I'm attempting to achieve. That's one of my gifts. So I'm able to apply that accordingly. So in this particular situation, it's about making creative decisions in orchestrating. So to answer one part of your question, what is it really to be um, a producer? I likened it, it's the equivalent of being a director on the film. Yeah. You are the guy that makes the decisions, that, that, that comes up with the direction of the project of the music. You work with the musicians, you figure out stuff with the song, you work out the elements, the instrumentation, you're involved in the recording, you're involved with the mix, you're involved with all aspects of bringing the best out of said project or said artist for that. So I got into this experience where we laid all this down. We're shopping. You know, I was also shopping. It got really close to a record deal with, uh, I think, a subsidiary of RCA, Novus Records. And it didn't happen. And we ended up editing. I went to another studio and I'm sitting there. You know, this is back when tape and razor blades. And, you know, I'm sitting there with an engineer spending someone else's money cutting, you know, a 20 minute guitar solo down on a song and, and piecing it together. And again, learning the creative process of how to make that happen. So I, I really was intrigued by this and I was realizing, Oh, this is something I really like because it calls upon so many creative elements of myself and in general as a, as a role of responsibility. So when I eventually did leave Los Angeles, I ended up, co-producing another project for a new age artist, a harpist, and uh, found myself at a famous, another famous uh, studio, Pachyderm, in uh, Minneapolis, outside of Minneapolis, and uh, tracking and doing this. That album actually hit the charts eventually on the new age charts. And so now I'm kind of getting a taste for this, like, wow, all right, this is something. Um, I did some projects here and there, and then eventually... Um, I met uh, Holly Long, who, you know, <laughs> which yeah. brought us together, right? right? So that whole situation came where a friend of mine was the music director, uh, music supervisor for General Hospital, and he had walked into a record store where Holly at the time was working, um, asking for music and, you know, what should I get for this? And they're having their conversation. He goes, what do you do? And he goes, well, I'm an artist. And, you know, I, I recorded an album or two. And he said, you ought to talk to my friend Anthony. So Holly and I connected, became fast friends, and she asked me to produce her third album. And um, that was a wonderful experience where, again, I'm pulling everybody in, working with her on the songs, doing the thing. And that album was one we were going to do a live gig with outside of Chicago, which is how I found you. Right. Many yeah. years ago. Do you remember that? I do, of course. I yeah, do. I mean, I put an ad. We, I think 
our guitar player wasn't available that I had on the session. So I put an ad out in Craigslist, yeah. guitar player, and you responded. You and I got on the phone, and here we are many years later, best friends. I know. It's great. It's remarkable. It's wild to think about, huh? <laughs> it's a real trip. So you joined us for you know, a concert and, right. and played on... Um, tracks and then you know that went well and i eventually got asked to do the next album um which you also contributed greatly to but in the interim of all that i'm also um you know and i'm jumping around here but i was out in uh san francisco for a while i had i was the you know the anr guy for record label and i helped uh create the first line of cds for national geographic and then i ended up working with other companies executive producing which is a little different where you know, A&R is artists and, and repertoire, so that has to do with the working artists and their songs. Executive producing is overseeing the project as a whole, but not necessarily producing the individual tracks. Yeah. So I ended up doing a lot of compilation work, not only for that label, but I also did it for other companies, you know, like okay. Target and um, Shopco and, you know, just, you know, whatever those kind of companies are that would do compilation stuff. Mm -hmm. I, I would do those kind of projects. I you know, would write liner notes. I would pull the tracks together, find the artist or executive produce things. I ended up working with baby genius yeah. and doing a lot of albums for them too. So when you think about, you've had a lot of adventures, right? And you've had a lot of, you know, in some ways related, but, but varied experiences work wise and so forth. When, when you think about it, were you, were you or are you a person who has, uh, for example, do you have specific goals or objectives or are you going on instinct from thing to thing and kind of flowing with whatever you're vibing with or do you have like a plan or how, did, how have you approached that in your life? It depended what I was doing at the time. I've never been a master plan guy in that regard. Like, here's my okay. five-year plan, and here's my list, and I cross everything off from an accomplishment. I'm a little more freeform uh, that way. I do trust my instinct greatly. I rely on it greatly. Uh, my gut guides me in a lot of things. And I also love the experience of something new, um, from an adventure standpoint, it goes back again to being a kid, right? So the adventure of trying something new, especially, you know, all the things that I've accomplished have come through no training or no teaching. It's throwing myself into the deep end of the pool and trusting I know how to swim. Yeah. The difference is I do know how to swim. I know that about myself. So that kind of self-confidence, you know, that, that, know, that knowing myself well enough that if I apply myself, listen, learn, um, assimilate, create, share, etc. All these elements of things you know that I often teach people is is that place of understanding that kind of you know um, interaction, that interplay that happens of energy kind of moving around and self awareness and also connecting to other people and other circumstances allows me to ebb and flow a little bit more and trust the process. I've always been one that really has trusted the process and I've rarely been let down, you know, from that. Um, there's a certain mooring that I have to my own principles, to, you know, my own values and things of that nature. 
But what I'm able to do is give myself the freedom to not necessarily where the wind blows because I set my own course, but to keep an eye open for what land I want to explore, you know, using that as a metaphor. So um, I'm very fortunate that I get to experience, you know, not only the adventures, but work with extremely talented uh, people, work on extremely fun, amazing projects on behalf of these people. And I'm there to be of service. You know, I, I get to be part of the creative evolution that happens in any given situation that I'm, you know, um, gifted to be a part of. When you're talking about that, I'm thinking about, I guess, this topic. So the, um, the, when you said be of service and things, the difference between, um, maybe what I'm going to generalize, maybe what is a tendency in, in a lot of us when we're younger to have a more self-centered approach mm-hmm. um, to moving away from that as we get older. Um, do you have a sense of your orientation in that regard? Like, are you, do you think to yourself like, oh yeah, I used to want to have more attention or um, get more credit for things when I was younger and now I'm, you know, I'm different or, or can you talk about that? Because it seems like a lot of the stuff you've done would be um, it would be advantageous to be able to let that go a little bit. Yeah, I've never I don't know that I ever had that calling to be front and center in it, you know, and, and be the star in that sense. Yeah. Um that's never been a driving force. And I and I've looked at that because I had opportunities, you know, I mean there's people back when I was helping comedians and writing you know, why don't you do stand-up or, you know, why don't you go into acting? I certainly was in the hotbed of doing that. I would have had, you know, potential, you know, uh, certainly opportunities, whether it have success or not, who knows. Um, and in the music thing as well, um, or in any creativity that I do, it's never been my wish to be out there in front and under the spotlight, though I have been sometimes. You know, sometimes I've hosted events you know, raising money for things where I've been the MC, um, or, you know, I, moments like this where, you know, it's just me and somebody else. Um, but the service piece is really important because uh, I am, I'm off, often serve as a catalyst to change. And often my role is, is being the helmsman, you know, and helping guiding the ship through uncharted waters and helping people make decisions that serve the greater good of what it is they're endeavoring to accomplish. Mm-hmm. So in that role, it's extraordinarily self-satisfying because I'm getting to make, I'm helping make a difference for people. And I get my yayas out of the creative expression and out of the creative experience. I mean, you know, I've touched a lot of projects. I've touched a lot of um, talented people and, you know, whether it's books and, art and you know albums and it doesn't matter what it may be mm-hmm. but that's enough for me in that sense i mean of course i want to be acknowledged and i want to get credit for what i've done but it's always a collaborative i mean you know this as a as, a, as an amazing musician yourself you know the collaboration is where it's at the, the sharing the experience of exchange is where the magic is mm-hmm. um None of us can can thrive in a vacuum. So 
you know, what I endeavor to do is to work with as many people as possible where I can be of service and help that process of creativity and birthing. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a creative doula in that regard. You know, I help birth projects and, and ideas and, and um, that's enough for me. You know, that's, that's a beautiful thing. Yeah. I'm okay with shifting. I mean, one of, you know, one of my things, you know, just full disclosure is that I will be slightly moving myself more into the spotlight because of some things I want to accomplish with some of my work, you know, writings and teachings, mm-hmm. you know, so that will necessitate me doing that more, but it's not about stardom and fame. I've been around so much stardom and fame. You know, I, I, I've learned from those who have suffered their own process, their own existence. And I know what I don't want and I know what I do want. And, and, you know, the health of anybody, in my opinion, is having a clear sense of self and being open to, you know, one of my mantras is being open to being open. So, mm-hmm. you know, I endeavor to be open to be open in any circumstance and situation so I can learn, grow, and evolve accordingly. Yeah. When you talked about a couple things there, one thing um, I'm getting is this sense of, you said it before, I think you described the self-confidence in, in being able to figure out and navigate situations and things like that. Um, and so there's kind of that level, but I'm also interested in like on a sort of a tangible level, like your approach to things like travel and so forth. Like, is that something you're interested in? And do you, um, what do you like or not like about it? Um, you mean as a concept or? Yeah, or just like when you're, you, when you experience it, if you do you like planning trips and going on trips, do you like going out? Do you, are you a planner or do you just go somewhere and figure it out? Like, how do you apply? I don't know that I'm, again, not great on the planning piece, yeah. um, but do I love travel? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I've been fortunate enough to go to some amazing places. And of course, you have to plan to go there. At least I have. I mean, I'm not, I'm not nomadic in that sense where I'm just kind of floating with the wind and end up you know, wherever I end up. Um, I did enough of that, sadly, as a child, moving around a lot. So, you know, and even as a young adult, so much moving. So that kind of grounding piece for me is really important now. Mm -hmm. But the adventurer is more the explorer and the curious human being that I am. And I'm I'm immensely curious. Things fascinate me. Many, many subjects uh, fascinate me. So... You know, I've had the good fortune of going to Bali, for instance. I've been to Indonesia. I've been to Malaysia. Um, I recently, just last year, prior to the whole COVID event, you know, uh, had two trips to China. Um, I love immersing myself in culture. I love learning about people. I love learning about where I am. And so, you know, and that can happen in the States. That can happen, you know, going to England and, you know, going to France. Uh, Travel and it's less about the travel. It's more about the exploration itself. And mm-hmm. I, I could do that all day long. I mean, if I could be paid to travel in that regard, yeah, I would do it in a heartbeat. Mm-hmm. What do you, um, is there, are there particular things you like to do when you go to a new place? Are there activities or? It's all about the food. Yeah. Okay. It's about the food. I'm a foodie. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, I've been plant-based and vegan for, you know, over 35 years. And my love 
is going into grocery stores and food stores and seeing things I've never seen before that fit within my niche of what I, how I eat. So I'm a kid literally in a candy store when I go into just a food store, you know, just check the shelves out and check the freezers. I mean, it brings me immense joy. I'm a geek. And also, you know, it's like eating food from different cultures. I mean, I took a cooking class in Bali so I could learn how to cook, you know, some vegan food uh, that matched, you know, the flavors I was experiencing. It was amazing. Um, So I do like that. So food, of course. And then the history, you know, it's just kind of, you know, depends on where you are. You know, if you're in Hawaii, you want to go find a cool beach or find a beautiful waterfall. If you're, you know, if I'm in England, I want to go explore castles and cathedrals and, and immense my, you know, immerse myself in a building that's over a thousand years old. I mean, I have wept when I've walked into, you know, buildings like that. Notre Dame, um, for instance, is one of those places that you know, I've been to a few times and I just get overwhelmed in there from the feeling, uh, the immense mm-hmm. beauty and power of a place, St. Paul's Cathedral in England. Um, there are places like that that I will always go to. One day I hope to uh, go to one of your favorite places, Greece, and it would be the same thing for me. I want to go down in the bowels of the, you know, the Colosseum. Mm-hmm. Um, energy, feeling, feeling what it must have been like then whenever then was um that's that's part of the miracle of kind of exploring our planet is that there's so much to be enjoyed there's so much to learn there's so much to take in you know from a sensory from you know from a mindset from everything so that's part of the fun for me and meeting the people of these places when i was recently in china the the people of china were just amazing i mean i just had such a great experience i would be out for morning walks because the time zone thing so wonky I'd, I'd sleep maybe four hours be up early which is not my thing and i'd be out and it'd be super hot and they have this game kind of like hacky sack but different where it's kind of like um you know the thing you use in badminton and it's got a different weight on it and they kick it and i would be invited no you know i don't speak the language they don't speak english and i'd be invited to play this game with them i'd be in another game with a paddle and a similar thing and i'd be invited they'd hand me the paddle and i'd be getting a workout i mean these people are you know older than i and just going and they do this as their daily workout and i'm but i'm playing and interacting with people whom i'm not able to have a discussion with but i'm able to have a human experience with mm-hmm. that is everything I mean, from a travel perspective, you can't ask for anything more. When you talked about going like to grocery stores and things like that, is that a thing you do? Like, if you go to a new city or something, will you anywhere? Go? Anywhere I go, I gotta, I gotta go find like where's the health, where's the health, where's where's the health food store, where's the co-op, where's the yeah, I have to because there's always going to be something that I'll find that I don't find at home. So when you talked about. Um, eating vegan and stuff like that so you started what was there like some kind of switch or turning point when you made a decision about that huge yeah life-changing i was in la so back in la 85 um i was having food comas you know i was out late always you know the entertainment business you'd be out in the clubs and you know the comedy clubs this music and you know i'd find myself at canter's two o'clock in the morning eating a mile high pastrami sandwich yeah. and you know just bad food behavior and on top of that i would have this you know hyperglycemic food comas where i would literally pass out 
and then wake up later drooling in a fog. I mean, just feeling crappy. And I, and I just didn't want that anymore. I mean, it was horrible. Mm. So I found this book. I think I found it at Erwan, which is a place that's pretty famous in, in L.A., natural food store. This book by John Robbins. And John Robbins of the Baskins and Robbins family okay. was heir to the Baskins and Robbins uh, money. And he turned his back on it um, because he was all about plant-based eating. And he wrote this book called Diet for New America. Very, very famous, popular book now. Mm-hmm. But in that book, I learned about the consequences of not only eating um, a non-plant-based diet for oneself, but also the impact on the planet. So I initially gave up uh, dairy and then eventually meat. And, and part of my learning in this process is that what became a health decision, and I quickly lost weight, felt better. I mean, it just monumental change, juicing, doing all this stuff, also became a spiritual mm-hmm. uh, choice because I, I was quickly got to a place of, and this is, you know, was true this many years later, is I don't believe that any other living creature has to die in order for me to sustain my life. I couldn't reconcile that anymore. Mm-hmm. And then it also became political. And what I mean by that is not in the obvious sense of it, but it has to do with what the heck are we doing on a planet where people are starving when there's plenty of food? Mm-hmm. And the choices that we make as individuals and how we and what we eat has a huge impact on the planet as a whole. Yeah. And so those, those things culminated for me in making choices that led to better health and wellness on multiple fronts and learning a lot about more Eastern medicine and things that weren't so Western-based and you know, obviously changing my diet, my way of life, my philosophy, my way of thinking, and that's you know, been 35 years on. And, and culminated recently in helping you know, uh, with my publishing company, publishing a raw food book. Uh, and also publishing a you know vegan cookbook, you know, so it's kind of kind of come full circle. When you, how did you come across that that book in the first place? I think I was just looking. I don't know if it, and it could have been at Bodhi Tree, which you know I had a good for. That's a famous place, initially made famous by Shirley MacLaine. But it, I became friends with Stan and Phil, the owners of that place, and I was there all the time. It was just a totally groovy place to go look at books for hours, you know, at the end of Mel, uh, Melrose in Los Angeles. And so it was either there or at Airline, because those were two of the places I was hanging out. And um, somebody could have told me, but I honestly don't remember how it got in my hands. But once I read it, it was like, oh, yeah, this is going to change my life. And it did. I mean, it did. And, and it's, you know, I've been touting that book ever since. Mm-hmm. Uh, are you still are you still a sports fan of, of any sort? Huge sports fan. Yeah, yeah. What do you like to What do you like to watch as a spectator? Big basketball fan, big tennis fan. Okay. I watch other sports. I kind of drifted away from baseball, um, though I do watch it. You know, I'm not a true fan in that sense. Um, you know, during the championship games and the World Series sometimes. And uh, football, I watched just because I had it all in my life, you know, all my life as, as a kid because I went to all the games for the Kansas City Chiefs. And then Chiefs, okay. Yeah. I was a Chiefs and, and still am. And so it kind of came around from 69 when I was a fan. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
chance again. Um, but uh, tennis, because you know my mom turned me on the tennis, so I just love. And sadly, you know, with COVID and all that, it, it's you know all those sure. things. Um, but yeah, I, as a as a spectator, I love it, and as, and as a participant, I love hiking, biking, and running. You know, that's mm-hmm. kind of my thing. That's my meditation. Is getting into those things. How long have you been a runner? You know, I thought about that not too long ago, and I realized I've been running a long time, and I'm not built for it. I'm not, you know, tall, lanky, and, and sinewy in that way, and, right. you know. And so um, I always run. And I, there's something about there's an endorphin release. There's a freedom. And, 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 and let me make note, it's about running outside for me. Never was good on the treadmill doing that thing. It's not running for running. It's running, taking in nature. So it's it's the connecting to nature, foot on the earth, that whole kind of thing, breathing fresh air. Yeah, it becomes my meditation. So I would say, you know, easily since my twenties, you know, just a long time, um, off and on, you know, and 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 gotten better at it as years go by. With you know, um, just something about it is very relaxing and freeing, and obviously healthy for me yeah is that your like number one meditative activity like what's the thing that for you that's the most like i can get in the zone and i can just you know sort of detach from anything that's troubling me during the day what's that that and playing music i'm not an accomplished player like you um or others friends and colleagues um but i love playing piano yeah, you know, for me is my way of just you know, and and I'm self-taught in everything. I mean, literally everything I do, I'm self-taught. So, um, something about playing piano and just kind of channeling that and letting it flow through me is very meditative. Running, extremely meditative. Um, but also, so is music as a whole, as a listening. You know, mm-hmm. you know, uh, all I got to do is put on Garaki's Third, and you know, just transports me to a different place or, you know, countless other things that move me. Sure. But, um, and hiking can do the same thing, you know, but it all depends on what I'm going for. Am I looking for a zone out or disconnection? Am I looking for, you know, mm-hmm. peace? It, it, it really depends. Um, just recently, because where I moved to, I've got a mountain bike, which I haven't had the opportunity to, to really use yet, but I'm looking forward to going out on trails in the middle of the woods and just kind of yeah. doing a different vibe that way. Sounds great. Where do you, how do you do your best thinking when you need to either try to come up with ideas or work through a problem? Maybe it's different depending on the type of thinking, but it is, it is different. So if I know I have to communicate something, I often in the state of pre waking up. So it's not quite a dream state though. It can be. Yeah. I see everything. So one of the way my brain works from a creative standpoint is, you know, I have the ability to grok things. And grokking is the ability to simulate instantaneously and see things and and understand things very quickly. Um, That's one of the things that helps me being able to do what I do and doing it fairly well. So I'm able to write and see a whole letter or a whole whatever it is in my mind prior to being fully present and in the midst of doing it. Okay. So it's almost like the reverse phot- photographic memory. As I see it in its completion first, then I'm able to put it into reality. Mm-hmm. That happens all the time. That's kind of a constant thing for me always. Um, the other thing is often on my runs. Often mm-hmm. my runs or walks, you know, if I'm by myself, 
and not engage in conversation. Um, you know, it's like, it's funny when I talk to clients sometimes, I tend, you know, it's like, you know, I don't punch the clock for them because I, I, who knows, I could be in the shower, I could be on a run, some, you know, so I often, I always have my phone with me so I can record ideas, mm-hmm. uh, you, know, you know, put notes down because I'm very volcanic in that way that I will spew a lot of stuff out. It doesn't mean everything sticks, but right. I'm smart enough now uh, to know to catch everything that I can because mm-hmm. um, you never know, you know, when you start sifting through it where the diamonds are. Right. Um, so meditation, sometimes it's not about sitting in a chair and crossing my legs and, and doing own, though on occasion that is indeed something that's really beneficial, getting that centered and quiet. But often it's, it's from a creative standpoint of how to come up with stuff. It's being in the moment and allowing myself the freedom to focus on what it is I'm looking for. And often it'll come to me. It's really interesting. I, you reminded me of a, I read an interview years ago. I think it was with Robin Hitchcock and it was talking about being in that state of being almost being half awake, half asleep. It yeah. was probably more about falling asleep, but that, you know, that there's kind of different connections that happen and that sometimes mm-hmm. you're saying that's where certain song ideas will come from because you just make different combinations of stuff that's floating around in your brain that you wouldn't make if you were kind of fully, you know, dialed yeah. in, right, thinking rationally. Or well, because when everything else is turned on, you know, when you've got your senses are now, you know, uh, tuned in on different levels. And if you're, if you're kind of in that semi sleep state or whatever, I mean, I forget what song, I don't know if it's satisfaction or jumping Jack flash or whatever, but there's that famous story of Keith Richards who, came up with the riff in his sleep, woke up, pushed record, went back to sleep, didn't even remember doing it. And, you know, pushed play in the morning, and there's the riff that mm-hmm. went on to sell millions of copies and changed people's lives from a musical standpoint. So sure. I think that stuff happens for people. The key is to not get in the way. I mean, even if I'm fully cognizant of all things, the creative process, because that's where I live, that's my work, and it's also my personal passion, it's not getting in the way of the process. And whether it's painting, writing, recording, you know, taking pictures, it doesn't matter what it is. What I've learned is I don't think about it. I allow myself to do it and trust that I know enough mm-hmm. to not muck it up, right? And, and, and even if I do, there's no harm in that either. You know, uh, choices beget choices beget choices. So. I know enough of that to allow the process to unfold. And I'm an active participant in one level. And I'm also, you know, a receiver in that sense where whatever's coming through me, not to get too woo-woo, but I do believe there's some way that you tap into something. Sure. There's no reason that I should be able to come up with melodies and things on a piano the way that I do unless I'm just kind of opening a channel and trusting the process, right? I mean, you probably, as, as a guitarist and as a songwriter, you probably go through that process too. It's like, you may have an idea, but if you don't think about the idea and you just be, you'll end up with something that you weren't even thinking of, right? So does that happen for yeah, you? Sure. It's rare. Uh, the, I can do it by sort of ground up construction but actually the best stuff is things where it's like you just sort of hear it it's not like you're, you're yeah. not doing it you're not writing it you're basically transcribing doing it, it. Yeah, right? you're do- 
Yeah, that's, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah. Um, when you, uh, I'm interested in, I've asked a few people this question. Um, there's probably more than one answer, so you can just kind of pick one. Um, do you have a song or songs that you think of like as sort of your personal, what my friend Vinay calls secret personal anthems, right? Like that song that's like, it says something to you or about you and that you can go back to over and over to derive some kind of energy or inspiration. Yeah. I, the way that I would look at it is that there are different songs that serve as a soundtrack for different moments in my mm-hmm. life. Mm-hmm. And I, and it's almost, you know, with my NR and producer background, it's funny that it's almost like being the song supervisor in my own film. But the film is my life. Right. So, yeah, there's certain types of songs I like to run to, for instance. There's certain songs I like to write to for music. There's certain things I like to listen to when I'm cooking. That's one of my passions, too, another mm-hmm. ever. So it's less about a specific song. Though there's some songs that resonate with me that have just kind of always been there for different reasons. But... Um, you know, whether it's a Who song or Three Dog Night or an Elton John song or, you know, mm-hmm. Beethoven song, it, there's different ones. But I really look at it as, it's funny, and kind of, it's funny hearing myself answer this, um, that it is about writing the score, in a sense, to the soundtrack of my sure. life. Sure. And I love music so much that, you know, I have it on all the time in yeah. different, you know, I just do. I, I, I have a speaker, believe it or not, in the shower. So I just love, you know, taking a shower to certain kinds of music, you know, it's like, yeah. yeah. Um, So, you know, music is an integral part of my existence, to be sure. Give me one go-to cooking song. Um, Oh, that's good. Um, I like Funeral for a Friend by uh, Elton John. Because it just builds, you know, it's, and it's sure. like, so you're like chopping stuff and it's like, you know, and then, and then it just starts kicking in. And I'm a big David Johnstone, you know, fan, guitar yeah. player, highly underrated. As is D. Murray, by the way. But Yeah, D. Murray on bass, Nigel Olsen on drum. I mean, just a killer band. Yeah. Um, and that album is a great album for cooking. Agreed. Yeah. Well, that's I mean, funny for cooking. I know, I'll have to think about that next time I'm making some food. Yeah, it's just a great because you know the songs well enough and there's right. so much diversity in that album from a, you know, stylistically yeah. that keeps you engaged and you're not hearing the, I don't know. It's just a killer album. One of my favorites. Yeah, that's great. Um, I want to go back to one thing yeah. I'm interested uh, in terms of just sort of personal history stuff. Um, you when did you leave Minnesota? What age were you? Well, I've come and gone from Minnesota yeah. multiple times. So I, Initially left Minnesota, moved there for the one, let's see, I moved there for seventh grade, okay. was there for a little bit, dropped out of high school, was out of ninth, and then I'm just thinking, so I was there, so I would have left 84, okay. I went to England for a while and came so, back, so I think it's 85, I ended up in LA, so I would have okay. left in 85. What, uh, can you, to the extent you're comfortable talking about it, like, mm-hmm leaving leaving high school and going to england you want to talk about that is that sure. i'll talk about anything okay yeah um what what led 
left leaving school and all that. Yeah. And then, yeah. yeah. I was a hardcore drug addict. Uh, I was a garbage can. And uh, this is like freshman high school, freshman high school ish from 14 um, all the way to age 20. Okay. Um, I was uh, smoking, you know, I was, I was, you name it, I was doing it. Yeah. Never, never shot up heroin because I always thought if I did, I'd be a drug addict. Sure. Talk about denial. Right. So I'd smoke it um, or snort it. Did a lot of cocaine, did a lot of uppers, downers, smoked pot, uh, chain smoked dope. Um, like people chain smoke cigarettes. That was me with pot. Um, so, you know, I was, I was on the fast track to nowhere and my life was falling apart. So I was, you know, 19, my older girlfriend had left the band thing, you know, that I referenced earlier was breaking up. I had no money. I knew an attorney and I ended up, he put me up in a place, uh, downtown Minneapolis, which was surrounded by, you know, hookers and drug addicts and had no heat. And I had a mattress on the floor. My life was pretty crappy. Mm-hmm. And I ended up uh, getting up one morning and grappling for, you know, my butts that were on the floor, trying to roll a cigarette. And, you know, um, ended up kind of stumbling into the bathroom. And it was that kind of bathroom with the bulb hanging down, you know, from above and, you know, the smoked out, you know, fading mirror. And I turned on the faucets and uh, ran the water and stared into the mirror and I couldn't see myself. And it was at that point I thought about killing myself. I thought, why do I, and there was nothing worth living for. I mean, I had lost everything. I had nothing Mm -hmm. bad. And I was, you know, so uh, the shorter version of the story is that I had reached out to my best friend, Bob's mom, and she offered to talk with me at a church and the prerequisite that I wasn't using. And of course I lied, you know, as any good drug addict would. So we would meet at a church in the library once a week and she would listen to me and offer love and support, which I wasn't getting from my family. And one day I stumbled out of my big Bonneville and there must've been a cloud of smoke following me. And, and she asked me, are you using and for whatever reason, in that particular moment, on that particular day, I did not lie. I said, yeah. And, uh, and I'm not overstating this. Within minutes, I'm at a drug treatment center being evaluated for drug and alcohol addiction. And um, they couldn't get me in. And that was March 11th, uh, 1980. But I stayed sober until they could. And I went through a four-week inpatient program, which was you know, a really crazy experience and a long story unto itself. Yeah. The end of that, um, they were really concerned about me not being able to stay sober. And, you know, I overheard them and I had this big cathartic moment. And the last day of treatment and the last group where I did something called a uh, family sculpture. And the family sculpture is where without words, you use people, usually your family members, but I didn't have any there. So I used people in the group you construct a sculpture so you can visually represent your family existence. And so I had my sisters running around and this, and I had, you know, my mom up on a table as a puppeteer and I had, you know, and all this stuff. And I had my dad who I didn't know. And the John, my therapist made everybody sit down except for this one uh, guy who was a counselor in training at the time. His name was Scotia. And he was playing my father. The next thing I know, John's asking me to dialogue with my father. I never knew. 
I'm doing this in a circle of 30, 40 people in the middle of that circle, having a conversation with my dad. That continued until John uh, asked me to bury my father. And so I'm down on my knees on the ground. There's Scotia laying down. And the next thing I know, I went blind. And I went deaf. And I saw a white light. And after that experience, which was, a, you know, a spiritual experience um, that's hard to explain, as I came out of that, I don't know how long that happened because I was deaf and blind. And I mean, it was just, I was, I was enveloped by white light. I was being held and rocked uh, as tears came forth and the whole room, as I could look through my tears, you know, tear-filled eyes, everybody in the room was crying and everybody had witnessed a spiritual experience. And that moment onward, I never used again. I changed my life. I had a deeper understanding of a higher power, of my connection to a higher power for me. Mm -hmm. uh, so that led me eventually to wanting to get to know my father. And the woman that he married, Lorraine, um, after his you know, marriage to my mom, stayed in touch with me through the years. And he died um, many years earlier, and I never got a chance to meet him. And she had come over to visit once, and I was a horrible host. I mean, I was just awful. I, I, I feel so badly about how I treated her, because I think I was just scared, overwhelmed. You know, and I am as a young adult. But I chose to move over there as a quest. It was yeah. really to England yeah. and to go live in my dad's house with her. And I didn't know if I'd be there for a day or 10 years. It didn't matter. I sold everything. I moved and, you know, big going away party, the whole thing. And here I am in his house with his wife. And we would sit up to three, four in the morning, God bless her. And she would share everything about my dad, about how he felt about me. I had letters. I looked, I mean, I had things to read, his journals. He was a lieutenant commander in the Royal Navy. He sang in the choir. He played guitar. Um, you know, I just learned things that I never knew. That's where you get your shredding skills. And it is the shredding skills. And I have his guitar right there. Awesome. Um, so that was a hugely profound experience. And so I would have these meditative moments riding his bike down to the seaside. You know, she lived down by, she was on the south side of, the, of uh, England, off the Isle of Wight. And I would just sit there and I would, you know, go to the villages and at that time eat fish and chips and walk around and then just do a lot of soul searching, do a lot of grieving, do a lot of connection to my father. And um, I ended up spending about four months there and realized that I had fulfilled what I needed to do. I didn't need to mm -hmm. stay there. I mean, I, it was deep work. It was like a therapeutic experience. Um, and she walked me through it all. You know, I mean, she was just angelic and an amazing human being um, and really became my mother in a sense, you know, because she was yeah. always there for me. So coming back from that, from England, going back to Minnesota, that was kind of a shift and change that changed my life as well as so I had a better sense of a relationship with my father. I was able to reconcile a lot of things that were going on with me about him and I was able to let go. And I was able to do the grieving that was needed, and I was able to move on. And that's always the most important thing. So that freed me up in an emotional sense to kind of get on with the rest of my life. And that 
you know, it was in the mid eighties and it was shortly thereafter that I went out to Los Angeles. Yeah. Sounds like a major transformation. Yeah. Huge. And, and that's been, you know, the cornerstone again, one of my moorings, you know, through, through, you know, 35 years of being plant-based and now, you know, 40 plus years of being sober. And those things are the things that are the pillars, you know, the mm-hmm. foundation of, of what I build my life on. Mm-hmm. Um, without that, I mean, I, could, I, I should have been dead many times over given the lifestyle and circumstances I found myself in and the amount of drugs that I've done. And, you know, I had the opportunity to save myself and, and, and battle my addiction and, and come out the other side sober and, and also do that process because the stuff with my dad had everything, a lot to do, majority to do with why I was using in the first place. Mm-hmm. So to be able to, to deal with that at a deeper, profound level that I couldn't have done in any other way than the way I did it, other than if he had been alive and dealing it with him. But right. the next thing of being in his home with his wife and, you know, coming to terms with a lot of my anger, my fear, my misconceptions, the lies that were told to me by family members, uh, et cetera, it allowed me to to move on and, and let go and, and, and heal in a really healthy way. Do you think it made you more, um, well, even when I started to ask you about this, right? You're like, I'll talk about anything. Like, do you think it made you more direct and open or is that something that's, you think is just kind of your instinct? No, I, yes. I mean, meaning I have, the reason I say it that way, I'll talk about anything is that I have no shame. Yeah. Any shame that keeps me stuck in a place of embarrassment or ugliness or, you know, and I think that's, you know, that's something I wish for everybody, you know, is when we get to a place of shame, it's it's a shackling system you know, for us. And um, we're not, you know, we have to realize that, you know, darkness can be our best friend. You know, faith is part of that process of trusting, you know, the process of whatever, but we have to commit to it and we have to do the work. So for me, being able to be to a place where I can talk about anything with anybody is because I hold no embarrassment. I have no weirdness. I don't have any awkwardness. I don't have any shame. Mm-hmm. And that is freeing. And so I don't know how much of that existed in me pre being sober, but I do know when I reconcile with myself of who I am, and what I'm about and how I want to walk this world. I also knew that I wanted to walk this world shame free. Yeah. And that is extremely freeing because there's nothing I'm not hiding, you know, in any way or I, yeah. Yeah. That's powerful stuff. It's, it's important. You know, it it is powerful. It's important for me, but I think, you know, anybody else that can get to that place, the, the power, the empowerment that comes from that is really life changing. Um, because you know we're not we are not all that we have done. Mm-hmm. We are we are in this mo- moment due to the many roads we have traveled to get here. Mm-hmm. And 
all of us are uniquely shaped by our world experiences. And we get to make choices on any given day how we interact with ourselves and with others. You know, do we choose to interact from a place of kindness, of love, of openness? Um, or do we want to be petty, angry, you know, it's, you know, whatever. So we, yeah. every day there's a choice. Every moment, every minute there's a choice. And I choose to, to make certain choices that, that align with who I choose to be. Yeah. It's inspiring, man. Um, I appreciate you sharing some of your experiences in the world um, in this session. I feel like we're just scratching the surface. Um, but we can, we can get at it again. But I want to thank you for being on What Else? It's a real treat. And uh, I'm privileged to talk to you about this stuff. Thanks, buddy. It's been a real pleasure. All right, my duder. Love um, you, buddy. Officially, uh, thank you to Anthony J.W. Benson for being on the uh, What Else? What Else? What else? What else?